the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for Simple Truth Moments, hosted by Reverend Earl Clampett of Simple Truth Ministries, a weekly show dedicated to excavating God's Simple Truth Moments. Good morning, San Diego Saints. I am your host, Reverend Earl Clampett. Welcome to Simple Truth Moments, a unique type of broadcast with the goal to prepare the body of Christ for the momentous times in which we find ourselves. This program serves as a kingdom training platform, challenging church tradition, not with hostility, but with a view to assess the biblical validity of what is taught and lived. So put on your seatbelt for an enlightening journey of cultural context and a fresh way to more thoroughly comprehend the kingdom ways of God. Good morning, San Diego Saints. Welcome back. We are continuing on with our series of the book entitled Homecoming. The byline under the title is How the Mystery of the New Covenant Brings Both Jew and Gentile Back to Abba Father. And uh, just to do a little summary of what we did uh, last week, last week's show, we uh, introduced the concept that the New Covenant, which was announced um, while the Hebrews were in uh, captivity in Babylon, that through the prophet Jeremiah, the father announced he was going to make a new covenant with his Hebrew people, his Hebrew children, who um, needed some rescuing because their condition was not good. Um, They had disobeyed God. They had rebelled against him. They had ignored all of his admonitions and warnings, which were designed to keep them safe, designed to keep them prosperous, designed to keep them uh, alive because they were connected to God. And having unfortunately ignored or blown off um, all of those uh, love-induced, love-motivated fear, um, I'm sorry, love-motivated warnings, love-motivated warnings. Because when someone gives us a warning, oftentimes it is based on Compassion. It is based on love because if the individual giving us the warning didn't care about us, well, then um, if we were doing something that was dangerous, if we were doing something that was hazardous, if we were doing something that was very risky, and you could intervene and do something or say something to help that individual not drive off that cliff, so to speak, and you did nothing. Well, people might conclude you really didn't have any stake in the game. You didn't care about that, the welfare of that individual. And here, um, Father God announces, um, as we discussed in the last show in Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, verses 31 through 34, he announced a new covenant. Um, the new covenant was a continuation uh, in, a, in a different radically different way of the Mosaic Covenant, which was um, a series of laws that were written on stone. And we indicated last week that the Hebrews were not able to keep God's laws because of a couple of things. First of all, they were written on stone tablets. And second of all, the Hebrews had not yet received the uh, Holy Spirit to guide them, to empower them to advise them, to give them wisdom. And um, so we discussed also that in Galatians chapter 3, Paul explains the reason for the original giving of the law at Mount Sinai at the uh, Feast of Pentecost, which the Hebrews call Shavuot, which, by the way, is coming up um, very shortly uh, in about a week or so. And um, so... Since the Hebrews were not able to keep uh, the Sinai Covenant, the Law of Moses, as we call it, Ten Commandments, 
um, they needed something more effective in how to take these loving, these uh, motivated by love warnings and laws that Father God did as a loving father. Um, These laws were not arbitrary. They were not capricious. They were not off the cuff, so to speak. They were well thought out to how to protect Father God's children and how to provide for Father God's children and how to give identity of their status in the family to Father God's children. And um, unfortunately, they were unable to keep the Mosaic Covenant. It was basically a bilateral promise, uh, Father God promising to do certain things uh, if the uh, Jewish children would respond to the stipulations, if you will, to the terms of the covenant, terms of the contract. It was a contract, uh, promise for a promise, bilateral contract. And even though they promised to keep the law, that's what they told Moses, they were promising to do that after the whole uh, calamity and disaster of the golden calf incident um, at Mount Sinai. Um, They were not able to keep the law. And Was it a matter of unwillingness or inability, or a matter of both? So, after the Hebrew people had turned away from Father God and basically uh, mixed and meddled with all of the different cultures that he warned them about, because the mixture with those cultures was going to bring um, competing gods with a little g— um, and paganism and demonic-influenced uh, tyranny like the, uh, the Hebrew people experienced in Egypt. And he warned them, don't go back to Egypt. But that wasn't just physically don't go back, but also emotionally don't go back. In other words, uh, Passover happened for a reason. It was the beginning of a journey. Um, the Hebrew people were delivered from death with the 10th plague. Um, But as we talked earlier, um, they had to get dressed on that Passover night, dressed to leave, dressed to go quickly, um, rapidly. And, um, And I asked the question hypothetically, when we share the gospel um, with new potential folks, new potential converts. Um, do we tell them the whole story, or do we just tell them about Jesus came to forgive us our sins, which is huge, which is enormous, which is so important to start something, but did he come only to forgive us? And unfortunately, a lot of the times, at least in the Gentile context, um, that's what's preached um, pretty much exclusively, that that's why he came. Well, it's partially correct. We need forgiveness of sin to get us out from under the guilt of sin, the shame of sin. But the bigger story, the bigger process is how do we get out from under the power of sin over our lives? Did Jesus come also to deliver us from Satan's snare of control and power over us. And so a lot of times in the uh, Complete Jewish Bible by David Stern, when the word being saved is used, David Stern uses another word that describes the part two of the salvation experience. And he uses the word, instead of salvation or saved, he uses the word deliverance or delivered, kind of along the lines of how Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, um, prophesied when the curse on his tongue came off at the circumcision of John the Baptist. And if you look at that prayer, um, it's very similar in Luke chapter 1. It's more of a prophecy. 
Uh, look at the wording of that in Luke chapter 1 compared with three chapters later in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus announces in the synagogue that um, he's the Messiah, and he's come to do the Father's work, to bring liberty to the captives. Doesn't that sound like more of a deliverance of power over our lives rather than just a transportation from point A to point B? He talks about um, bringing sight to the blind so that we can see the condition that we are in with this power of sin still controlling us even after we get forgiveness of sin. And last show, we asked the question, what would happen if the Hebrews got delivered from death, um, which all of the firstborn of Egypt suffered that night of Passover and the 10th plague, and assuming they ate the lamb and they put the blood of the lamb over the doorposts of their house, and we can see all the symbolism and what that means when we have what we call initial salvation. But what would have happened, hypothetically, if the Hebrews decided after being saved from death, being forgiven of sin, that they had remained in Egypt? What if they had decided to stay? Well, why would they do that? Well, even though they were slaves of Pharaoh, they were an enslaved uh, culture, um, Sometimes we can rationalize any situation to say, well, you know, at least I know this um, circumstance or these situations or this environment, and we decide to stay with what's familiar, even though it's harmful, even though it is deadly, even though in the long run it's designed to do us harm and not good. It's designed to bring death and not life. It's designed to extend darkness and not light. And it's designed to keep us in evil and not bring us to good. And so asking that question, a lot of times when evangelism is done, especially in Gentile circles, um, what's emphasized is the forgiveness of sin, which is huge. But they have to understand in the in the Jewish Testament, in the Old Testament, they already had forgiveness of sins. You know, when um, the Moses uh, Tabernacle was built and um, they had the whole um, regiment of how sins were forgiven with all of the different sacrifices that were offered to God on behalf of the people for sin, for forgiveness of sin, for forgiveness. So forgiveness was already something that was in the community of God. I mean, that bronze altar out in front of the outer courtyard of the tabernacle of Moses, that bronze altar was burning day and night, 24-7. And those Levites, you know, were busy, busy priests intervening, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. And... Back then, if you gave an offering of an animal, that's like some, taking something valuable out of a, a bank account because animals were uh, oftentimes the measurement of, of wealth. I mean, look what look at the reference of talking about Abraham and his type of wealth. It was talking about the number of head of cattle, the number of head of sheep. And so when you're asking for God for forgiveness in the Old Testament using the Levitical priestly system, you were giving something up of value. You were giving over a bull or um, uh, a lamb, depending on a goat, whatever, whatever the type of offering, what was necessary for the forgiveness element. And, and so when I hear oftentimes evangelists, uh, Gentile evangelists talking about how marvelous the sacrifice of Jesus is, they're certainly true. It's absolutely accurate. It's correct, but unfortunately, that's where the message stops. It doesn't move beyond that. And so the equivalent is the Jews got saved on the night of Passover with the 10th plague. The Jews 
got delivered from death. That was their initial salvation experience. But how many Christians, uh, talking typology, representation, you know, um, example of using the, the Old Testament as an outline, as a preview, as a shadow or a type of a forecasted future, how many, how many Jews, if they had stayed behind in Egypt, would have learned what the whole deliverance and salvation process was for? What was the purpose? It wasn't so they could stay in Egypt. It wasn't so they could stay there. It was so that they could, because they dressed appropriately, they were to move out and follow Moses to detach themselves from a tyranny of enslavement. Can you see the analogy here when you're comparing um, the type of government, the tyranny of Pharaoh, the enslavement of the people um, based on a pagan and a demonic culture, and the whole idea of initial salvation with Passover, of forgiveness of sin and being delivered from death, is to leave and detach yourself not only from the shame and guilt of sin, which we receive with forgiveness, but what's the step two? What's the next level? What's the next phase? Why was um, the initial salvation experience to later include the reason for the salvation experience? What were they saved for? What were they saved to? What were they saved from? We don't ask those questions. And we have to ask those questions in, in uh, modern times with us when we're out sharing the gospel. A good question would be to say, do you know what you're saved for? Do you know what God wants to save you from? Do you know what God wants to save you to? And basically, looking back at the shadow or type of what happened with the Jews, the idea is to get delivered from the power of the government of Egypt over your life. The power of the government of Egypt over the Hebrew people was of enslavement and persecution. Um, the reason Moses got saved by being placed in a basket and sent down, um, down, down the Nile River was because the Pharaoh at the time was fearful of the rise of the numbers of Jews. And so he started to slaughter, persecute um, the Hebrew young Hebrew males. And so it had already arisen to a level of persecution, not just enslavement. And so the idea of leaving Egypt is so that you can detach yourself, you can disconnect yourself from a culture of paganism and demonic oppression, the power of sin, and the tyrant, in this case of, of uh, Pharaoh, representing who? Satan, of course, and the type of power that he has over us in our lives prior to us being initially saved the deliverance occurs in a complete way when we leave and we pack our goods and we get out of Egypt, out from under the control of the tyrant. We don't preach that part. We don't preach the second part of Jesus saved us. It's more like a scholarship than a diploma in the initial stage of being salvation. It's a gift of an opportunity. An opportunity to what? To get out from under the power of Satan and the sinful life that we have been born into as fallen creatures from Genesis chapter 3, but also that we've signed on to. And we have to realize the Hebrews, to a large degree, became part of the culture of Egypt of 430 years. That's a long time. And yes, they had their little gardens of leeks and garlic um, just to, you know, cling to their rags and try to survive, get, just get by. 
But Father God has so much more than just getting us delivered out from under the the uh, power of the enemy, of Satan, of Pharaoh, of Egypt. We got to leave and we got to get on a journey. So that's pretty much what the review is about. And the idea is we're taken through the Red Sea. That's water baptism. We come up on the other side. Um, that's being born again because all of Satan's attempts to bring us back to Egypt were destroyed. Uh, his authority over our lives was destroyed when that army of Pharaoh was drowned in the Red Sea. And it was basically saying, you can't have authority over my people any longer. But what happened to the regaining of our lost inheritance? We thought we were going straight away to the to the promised land, and we were taken to a desert instead. And so Father God, realizing that in the fall of the garden in Genesis chapter 3, our parents lost their relationship with their father. And as such, they lost their eternal life. How can you say that? Well, John 17, 3 says, that's uh, Jesus saying the night before he died, and this is eternal life, that they may know you, Father, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. So we talked about this earlier, that um, relationship with God is eternal life. John 17, 3, check it out. So he... The Hebrew children are brought into a challenging place where there's going to be a covenant uh, administered to them, you know, at Sinai. That's what Shavuot's all about, is the bringing of the law. But it's basically Father God saying, I'm going to make a contract with you, and we're going to get to know each other. I'm going to bring you to a, um, an environment. The scholarship, I'm sorry, strike that, the... Um, yeah, it was. The scholarship was given to you as a gift of an opportunity to be delivered from death. But now I want you to, to start to enter into the university of God out in the desert where you and I are going to get to know each other, says the Father. You've been away from me. Eternal life is knowing me relationally, not just about me in your brain, getting facts and figures, but knowing me relationally, emotionally in your heart. And the way that's done is I have to bring you to a place where you cannot raise your own crops. The Nile River isn't there anymore to water those crops. You can't get by without me. The manna that's going to come supernaturally is going to be where it falls is going to depend on whether you, as a student in this university of God called the Desert of Sinai, whether you follow the cloud by day or whether you follow the pillar of fire by night. And if you don't do the little things of obeying God, of trusting God, of depending God, you won't be in the location where the food falls and you get nourishment and sustenance the next day. You'll be in a place where the whole camp went except for a few of you because you thought maybe perhaps you were smarter than God. You wanted to be an independent contractor and you didn't want to have to do this obedience stuff, not realizing there's another verse in John besides John 17, 3. It's John twelve forty nine and John twelve fifty, where Jesus himself says, "My listen, my Father's command is life. And the Jews had day-to-day commands from the Father in these different manifestations of what to do to not only survive, but to prosper. The idea was to get them their inheritance back over into the promised land. But they had to go to the university of God first. And that's why we say initial salvation is more like a scholarship. It's a free, paid, all expenses paid. We get that. But what's the 
what's the point of the scholarship? The point of the scholarship is to graduate from the University of God out in the desert of Sinai, out where God says, you're going to learn who I am, to trust me, to depend on me, to lean into me and not trust your own ways. And I'm going to give you food. I'm going to give you sustenance. I'm going to give you miracles where your shoes don't wear out and your clothes don't wear out. And I'm going to give you miracles of water out of a rock. And I'm going to bring you to your inheritance. That is because I am your father, says Father God, creator. And I want you and I and myself to have an intimate, deep, profound personal relationship. And that can't be done by me simply whisking you out of Egypt with the Passover and dump you into this um, promised land without you actually knowing that I'm the one who brought you out of Egypt and into your inheritance. It's so important that we realize that there's no shortcut to getting through the University of God out in the Sinai Desert. We'll see you on the other side, and we're going to talk about Jesus becoming that new covenant. Put on your seatbelts. It's going to be different. See you after the break. Welcome back, San Diego Saints. So we're continuing on with this study of the book called Homecoming, how the mystery of the new covenant brings both Jew and Gentile back to Abba Father. And we're going to go over to page 132 at this point in the book. And um, the subtitle under that, uh, I'm not sure what the number is. Let's see. This is chapter number seven. It's called God's Unfolding Plan, the Superior New Covenant, the superior New Covenant. And one of the uh, subheadings in that chapter is called Messiah Jesus as the New Covenant. And I start off in 132 with a question. And I say, um, well, God's New Covenant is clearly a contract. It's, it's, a, it's an agreement. It's a compact uh, between mankind. Um, and I ask, is that contract, the goal of that, New Covenant, is it, is it made with a who or is it made with a what? And we talked about um, in last week's show, this who is the seed, capital S, referred to in um, Genesis three fourteen through 15 and Galatians um, chapter 3 as well in verse 16. I just noticed it's really interesting. In Genesis, talking about the seed and the role of the seed of the, as the Messiah, bruising the heel of the, of the snake. Um, and, but basically, the seed's going to crush the head of, of the rebellious uh, angel in the form of the snake. That's in Genesis chapter 3. But notice the verses. That's 14 through 15. And then I just noticed this. In Galatians, the explanation of who the seed is... That's also Galatians, same chapter, not Genesis 3, but Galatians 3. And 14 and 15 are the two verses in Genesis 3 in the Old Testament. But look, it's the, <laughs> the wording, or the numbering, I should say, is Galatians 3, 16. So numerically, it's like 14 and 15 is the Old Testament explanation of who the seed is. And in Galatians chapter 3... The next number is 16, and it says, And to Abraham and his seed, that's a capital S, where the promise is made. He does not say unto seeds, small s, as of many, but as of one. And to your seed, capital S, who is Christ? That's Galatians chapter three sixteen. Wow, I never had seen that before. So that was just discovered on this radio show. Well, who is, um, or is the new covenant a who? We're made with a who. And we discussed that in last week's show. I'm not going to go into that, but look at chapters uh, 42 in Isaiah, verses 6 and 7, and also look in chapter uh, 49 
of the book of Isaiah, a prophetical book. And there's a conversation between the Father and the Son. And God the Father creator is telling the Son, I am going to make you, talking to the Son, to be the new covenant. And he uses those words, new covenant. How many years is, uh, was Isaiah written before the actual physical coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, of Yeshua HaMashiach? And so, um, we're going to pick it up from here. This is where we left off on the last show. Um, in these two portions of Scripture, talking about Isaiah 42, um, verses 6 and 7, and Isaiah 49... Verses 8 and 9. By the way, the sequential numbers of those verses is also interesting. Two different chapter numbers in Isaiah 42 and 49, but look at the numbers of the verses sequentially. Um, Verses 6 and 7 in Isaiah 42, and then when you get to Isaiah 49, look, the new verses are sequentially uh, numbered 8 and 9. Wow, I've seen that twice in the same show now. Okay, thank you, Lord. (laughs) I'm not, I don't think this is a coincidence. All right, so in these two portions of Scripture, I say on page 134, referring to Isaiah 42 and 49, God the Father prophetically speaks to his son, Jesus, Yeshua, that's Yeshua's his, um, Hebrew name, that Father God has made him to be the new covenant for the people as a light to who? To the Gentiles, to restore the earth. See, it's a circular story. And Gentiles are very much uh, a part and parcel and a portion and the purpose for which these covenants, these Jewish covenants were made. We Gentiles were the ultimate, to be the ultimate beneficiaries. We, the people of the nations. That's what Gentiles means. In, in Hebrew, it's, we're, it's goyim, G-O-Y-I-M. And that just means the people of the nations. There are only two groups in the scripture. There are the Hebrews and there are the Gentiles. That's it. It's not done based on race or color or uh, culture or language. It's just, it's done on those two groups. All of the promises, all of the contracts that are made regarding the restoration of God's plan um, and how those two groups are to interact with each other. And I point out in page 134, later in the New Testament, Messiah Jesus' sacrificial blood, catch this now, becomes the ratification of the redemption of the Hebrew people from the enslavement to Satan. Remember, you leave your slavery of Pharaoh, who was a a type or a symbol of Satan. They left their enslavement from Pharaoh. We're to leave our enslavement to sin that is directed by Satan through the new covenant. It's not just forgiveness anymore. We're now talking about what gets us out from under the power of sin. So we stop sinning. That's the actual deliverance. That's why I think the Jewish Bibles tend to use the word deliverance more often than salvation. Salvation for Gentiles, we think, you know, relocation, transportation. But the Jews don't look at it that way. When Zacharias was prophesying over uh, the Holy Spirit was prophesying through Zacharias over the um, the direction of John the Baptist as a as a young baby. There, it basically indicated that the Lord God was setting up a redemption program to to get us out from under the hands of those, the clutches of those who hate us. Now, who hates us? Satan and his kingdom, the rulers and the principalities. <sighs> There's a, there's a, there is a kingdom of fallen angels whose job it is to blow up the plan, the blueprint plan of Father God to bring mankind into his original designation in Genesis 1 and 2 to rule and reign over the material creation, which is earth and everything in earth. And Satan didn't like that, that he wasn't selected. Instead, these human beings were given the amazing amount of authority to rule and reign over the earth. That's why this whole 
picture of restoring the kingdom is circular. We're coming back to those original ideas. Our final resting place is not heaven. I'm not against heaven. Heaven's wonderful. But our final place where we are at rest with God is back here on earth. Check out the reference in Revelation chapter 5, in verse 9. Keep reading. We're to be kings and priests returning back with Jesus when he comes back to rule and reign, not in heaven. It's very clear. It says, on earth. Check out Revelations chapter 5, starting at verse 9. It's talking about a return of the children of God from heaven with Jesus to restore the kingdom of God on earth. All right. Now, let's take a look at if Jesus is the new covenant, as Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49 tell us, that's the proclamation of the Father directly to the Son, says, I am making you the new covenant. Now, check this out in the New Testament in Luke chapter 22. Uh, this is the night before Jesus died, and he's at the, fine, at the Last Supper. And I'm going to pick it up right here in verse 19 out of Luke 22. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, them being the apostles, saying, quote, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper, saying, and here's the key, this is the cup, listen to the wording, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you, the new covenant. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets, I came to fulfill them. In the Jewish Bible with, by David Stearns, it says, I came to complete them. In other words, he was saying, you're looking at the law when you look at me. And if you remember going back to Jeremiah 31, 31, the new covenant's not on stone tablets anymore. It's radically different. The new covenant is, this is how the father described it through Jeremiah. He said, I'm going to place my law in their minds and I'm going to write my law in their hearts. That's an inside job. That's an indwelling. That's a personal coming where God comes in to rearrange our furniture inside of us, not alongside of us, inside. And I put into uh, the next uh, paragraph here, also the new covenant is put into effect by Jesus' cup of sacrifice, atoning death, sealed in his own blood. And I'm going to read this out of the CJB, Complete Jewish Bible. Likewise, also the cup after the meal, saying, This cup is the new covenant affected by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it as a memorial to me. Well, Jesus is described as the Word of God. Check out the very first verses in uh, John, uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1. And it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 of John, chapter 1, he says, And the Word became flesh. And dwelt amongst us. So follow the logic here. There is no question that the word of God in John chapter 1 is not a what. It's a who. And why do we say that? Well, because of what verse 14 says in John chapter 1. The word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. We're talking about a person in the form of Jesus, the Messiah. He's very God of very God, yes. But he's also very man of very man. And that's messaging from God the Father to the enemy to say, look, you think I changed my mind about placing mankind in all of this authority to have them rule and reign over the earth? I never changed my mind. The Messiah doesn't show up as an angelic figure. He doesn't uh, show up as only a spirit. The messaging was the Father was sending to the enemy of Satan, I mean, as Satan as the enemy to the fallen kingdom, saying, I'm going to stick with the original plan. And my son, only begotten son, as not only son of God, but more often as son of man, is going to bring about the fulfillment of my original blueprint in Genesis 1 and 2. So, so I say there is no question that the word of God in John 1 is a who and not a what, and then I use... Um, I refer there to, in the beginning was the word. This is from 
Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was with God in the beginning. And then uh, verse 14, this is out of the complete Jewish Bible. The Word became a human being and lived with us. Pretty clear. And so in the next paragraph, I said, Jesus, Yeshua, Yeshua is the Word. That is... Yeshua, Jesus, is identified here as God. Why? Because look at verse 1 and 2 of chapter, of chapter 1 of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. You can't get more clear than that. So um, I go on to, to say, Yeshua, Jesus, is also the Word made flesh, having dwelt amongst us. That's verse 14 of John chapter 1. This word was God, and he was with God from the beginning, and he's identified by his name. Check this out in Revelations 19, verse 13. How is Jesus coming back in his second coming, dramatic as it is, described? How, what's, he, what's he named in Revelation 19, verse 13? This is the last book of the Bible. This describes his second coming. This describes that the, uh, the plan of Satan is, is now over. He shows up in Revelations 19, verse 13, as the Word of God. That's his name. It says he's identified by his name, the Word of God. Now, go over to John chapter 14. Let's try to tie this in. In John chapter 14, Messiah, Jesus, informs us. He's, again, the context is he's, this is at the Last Supper. He's with his apostles the night before he dies. Messiah Jesus informs us that if we are to have a relationship with him and his Father, now don't forget what eternal life is. Eternal life in John 17, 3 is having a relationship with both the Father and the Son. What does it say? And this is eternal life, John 17, 3. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent. So in John chapter 14, Messiah Jesus informs us that if we are to have a relationship with him and his father, in other words, that's how you get eternal life, we are to keep his word. Where does it say that? John 14, verse 23. Let's read that. I'm going to take it out of from the New King James Version. On John chapter 14. Let's get it here real quick. Here it is. Straight from the New King James. Judas, not Iscariot, this is actually verse 22, said to him, being Jesus, Lord, how is it that you will manifest to yourself, um, manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Check this out in verse 23. Here it is. Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, that's a relationship, folks, he will keep, notice the next two words, my word. And my father will love him. See how the father comes into this. If we want a relationship with the father, keeping the, com- the commandments of God, of Jesus, and keep the, keeping the word, if you will, is how we get to know the father. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John fourteen six. no one gets to the father. But there's another catch to it. Let's, let's, let's actually go back to 1421. This is Jesus Two verses earlier. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. Gee, that sounds like Jesus wants some evidence that if we (laughs) say we love him, he's going to say, yeah, well, show me, prove it. The next line. And he who loves me, listen to this, how the father comes in here. And he who loves me will be loved by my father. And I will love him and manifest myself to him. Now, Two verses later, John fourteen twenty three, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. So word is almost, simul- it's almost um, synonymous. I think it is synonymous with the word commandments in verse 21 with the word word in verse 23. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to do away with the law and the prophets. I came to fulfill them. Matthew five seventeen. that was the Sermon on the Mount. Going back to 1423, if everyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Now get this, 
put on your seatbelts for this. And my father will love him, and we, plural, to capital W, meaning both the father and the son, we will come and make our home with him. Wow. Look at verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my, what's he say here? Words. And the word which you hear is is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Wow. This new covenant is an interior arrival to the inside of us by not just Jesus as the covenant, as the word, as the commandment, but also Father God wants to take up his residence inside of us. Doesn't that make sense when you think of John seventeen twenty one? Again, same night, same context, same meal. John seventeen twenty one. Jesus starts explaining to the apostles. He's saying to the Father, and all the apostles are there listening. I do not pray for these alone, referring to the apostles, but for those who will believe in me through their word. Well, I think that these were the Jews there because all the apostles were, were Jewish, with maybe the exception of Luke. But when he says, but also for those who will believe um, in me through their word, I think that's the, that's the movement of the Gentiles coming in uh, in Acts chapter 15. But this is the goal. Look at 1721, that they may all be one. I'm talking about the two groups, Jew and Gentile together, because we have a mutual father and we have a mutual enemy called Satan who wants to destroy all of us, both of us, both groups. That they all may be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. Now, notice it doesn't say with. It says in. That they also may be one in us. In us, not with us. That the world may believe that you sent me. Wow. The new covenant, as contrasted with the old is to be written, this person is to be placed as the form of God's law, the fulfillment of God's law, and be placed in our minds, and then to be written in our hearts. That's what Jeremiah thirty-one thirty-one says. And by the way, if you want New Testament um, proof that this is a consistent message, check out uh, Hebrews chapter 8. And Hebrews chapter 10 in the New Testament. Twice this new covenant is mentioned using the same words virtually of Jeremiah 31, 31. I'm going to flip over there real quick and see if I can find it here. Let's take a look at Hebrews chapter 8. So you can find it. Yeah, here it is. Uh, Hebrews 8, 8. Because finding fault with them... He says, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. That, what's he talking about? That's the Mosaic covenant. Um, in the day that I took them from the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Okay? You see the context there? That was Sinai. That's where Moses got the Ten Commandments on stone, tablets of stone. Because they did not continue in my covenant. In other words, the Hebrews broke the terms of the, what they promised to do. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. But check, on, check out the next verse, Hebrews 8.10. For this is the covenant that I will make with them in the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. Now notice, when that happens, the result, when we allow the word to be placed in our mind, the word is who is Jesus, and written in our hearts, notice what happens after we allow that. I will put my laws, this is, I'm reading out of Hebrews 8.10 now, I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God. Does this sound like relationship to you? And they shall be my people. Does that sound? 
that the point of this interior new covenant being placed in us, it's not the stone tablets being placed in our minds and our hearts. It's Jesus saying, I'm the fulfillment of the law in Matthew 5, 17. You're looking at the law in a person form. The word and the commandments is or are the law in the form of a Jesus who is both divine as son of God and a son of man. Uh, we got to start wrapping it up here. Check it all also out in uh, Hebrews chapter 10. And that also mentions the new covenant and affirming that what we heard in Jeremiah 31, 31 is now being fulfilled in the form of a human divine being called Jesus of Nazareth, Yeshua HaMashiach, the Jesus the Messiah, to be written inside of us as the word, placed in our minds, written in our hearts, and we will never be the same. Are you ready for this? Check out Revelations 3.20 when he's standing at the door knocking. He's going to come in and dine with us and we with him. And look at the covenant promises. Wow. You ready for this, folks? I'm excited. God bless you. Hope that the next week has several simple truth moments in your personal walk with the Lord. See you next time. Thank you for spending your time with us excavating God's simple truth moments. For more information and resources, visit simpletruthministries.net. That's simpletruthministries.net. To contact Simple Truth Moments, email me at earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. That's earlsimpletruth at gmail.com. So until next time, may God richly reveal His Simple Truth Moments to you. You've been listening to Simple Truth Moments. Join Reverend Earl Clampett for another episode next Sunday at 11 a.m. right here on K-Praise. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.